Welcome to Crowdfunding Uncut. This is the place where incredible project creators show you how they launch their products online using the world's largest crowdfunding engines, such as Indiegogo and Kickstarter. Hey, thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by BackerKit. BackerKit is a crowdfunding fulfillment services agency that helps you manage and fulfill orders after your campaign is done. They've helped more than 1,900 project creators deliver products to over 3.5 million backers. Your job is hard enough without having to deal with surveys, fulfillment, upsells, and order processing. What BackerKit does is help you focus on the most important thing, which is delivering beautiful products to your customers on time without the headache. Let them help you with that. For more information, please head over to BackerKit.com. Welcome back, funders. This is episode 53 of the Crowdfunding Uncut podcast. I'm your host, Kirsten Ross. And this week, I'm really excited to be bringing on another guest, Brian Clark, who is the founder of several, several very successful companies. Um, He's best known as a serial entrepreneur. Some of his uh, ones that you may be most familiar with are copyblogger.com, Rainmaker platform, as well as the host of the Unemployable podcast. So Brian Clark is a interesting guest. Um, Before we actually got on to the interview, we were talking about why I like to bring on guests that sometimes have nothing to do with crowdfunding. And I find that if if I constantly brought on project creators to ask them what their strategies were to launch, I find that people are sometimes using the same strategies and have tunnel vision into the industry. And so what I like to do is I like to look at what are some of the complementary skill sets that we use to build up a successful crowdfunding campaign. These could be things like creating amazing content, creating videos that convert. It could be how to build an email list or how to reach out to influencers. Sometimes the best people for these are not in the crowdfunding space, but their knowledge is paramount to helping you stand out from the crowd. And Brian Clark is one of those cases. Um, He built up Copyblogger to an eight-figure business with no paid advertising. And what this allowed him to do was build up an audience organically that helped him shape beautiful products, validate new ideas, and and really see the benefits of what it's like to do a product launch with an already existing audience. But what he's also got really good at is because he's he's launched so, um, so many successful brands, he's really in tune with what it takes to validate an idea at the onset, even if you don't have an audience. So this has just been an amazing conversation with Brian. I wanted to bring him on because he's one of the most intriguing speakers I've ever met and he was one of the lineups at Tropical Think Tank and I just didn't get an opportunity to have a full conversation with him Um, but he's been a um, mentor of mine even though he doesn't know that for um, a long time so I this is just a great conversation and I hope you're digging some of the non-crowdfunding guests we're bringing on Um, don't worry I'm going to be getting back to some project creators very shortly but this is I want to create entrepreneurs that are well-rounded and have the best chance of success. And how we do that is by bringing in different perspectives. So, Brian, I am so excited to have you on the show this week. Welcome. Man, it's been four, five months since we last spoke in the Philippines. It's been a blur, but not as much 
of a blur as the Philippines was for different reasons, I think. I think so. I mean, (laughs) it's crazy because late nights on the beach, you're one of the people who I wanted to speak to more, but I just didn't get the chance. So, like, I wanted to reach out to you afterwards and say, I'm going to get him one-on-one because he seems like a really interesting character. Well, you know whose fault it is. It's Jordan's fault. And I know you just did an episode with him, but... It is his fault. He he was so drunk, we felt bad for him and felt like we had to catch up. I know. We had one conversation, which the whole podcast is about, like, part two of the conversation, but it was just, like, you know, how to be an awesome human being and some of the strategies he's used, and I just, like, I'm such a sucker for behavioral psychology that I was like, tell me more. <laughs> but then, I'm like, where's Brian? Oh, no, Brian, he left. Uh, so did he, uh, right? Jordan's great. Everyone was great. That was an amazing event. So don't tell Ducker. He's already got a big head. But I know. It, it was I know. good. Why do you think Tropical Think Tank is such a great event? Like, it's very different to any event that I've ever been to. But why – what is it about it, you think? I think the way it's structured, um, you know, as a speaker, a lot of times I'll do my thing and then kind of go introvert and hide. Um, but the way the mastermind aspects of it were structured in the afternoon, you couldn't do that, you know, and you commit to participate. And that was awesome. That was the best part for me. Uh, I think I got more out of it than I gave. Um, the other thing might be, for me, I think the sense of dislocation when you go 20 hours on a plane that you you kind of tend to bond maybe a little harder. And that was also very cool. Yeah, I get that because they literally put us on an island with 60 entrepreneurs for a week. There's <laughs> not much else to do in, in Cebu. I mean – Jordan escaped for the mystery rooms, but I mean, I don't know about you. I didn't leave the resort once no, in that time. Not so, at all. No. It was really cool. Um, so have you been over to the Philippines before this time? No, that's the farthest way I've ever been. I, you know, I've gone to Europe several times um, in Hawaii and the other direction, but I haven't been to Australia, uh, Hong Kong, anywhere in that area of the world. And now I, I can't wait to go back except that, Well, at least I know what I'm in for with that flight now. The unknown made it kind of, I think, uh, a little more challenging. And now you're like, yeah, it kind of sucks, but I can handle it. (laughs) Yeah, because I had a, I think, one of the longest flights in the world. I flew straight direct from Toronto to Hong Kong, which is 15 hours over the North Pole, which was cool. And the only cool thing that, that's the only thing that gave me my sanity was like just watching the map as we're going over uncharted territory. Yeah. yeah, it is such an investment getting over there. So next time, like I've done Australia, New Zealand, and parts of Asia, but like you really need to spend more than a week over there. That's my thing. It, you have to have at least two weeks. And you know, if I were to go to Australia, I'd want to be there, you know, a month or something, because yeah. you got to break up the two trips. And then, of course, with it, it's not my business that keeps me from doing that. We're we're very blessed in that regard to be location independent, mm-hmm. but. Uh, Kids. I got kids. Teenage. Oh, you do? Yeah. So, <laughs> How many? Yeah. Well, I've got – my daughter just turned 14 and I have an 11-year-old boy and their own – they're good kids. But, you know, they're kids and they need their dad and I can't just disappear until they're out of the house, <laughs> which I hope is before they're 30. We're working yeah. on Yeah. I remember when I turned 14 is when my – I gave my dad the biggest headache ever. Oh, don't just, tell me that. She's yeah. been so good so far. I'm just waiting for that turn. So you know? <laughs> I'm just a brat. Like that's, that's what I was. My dad's like, I can't wait until you have kids and I'm just going to be laughing at you. 
(laughs) (sighs) Terrible, but that's awesome. So Brian, CEO of Copy Blogger, Rainmaker Platform, you have quite an impressive resume, but I have a million questions I want to ask you about how you set all that up. But beforehand, I want to know, uh, when I was doing research on you and obviously listening to your speak, you are a recovering attorney. So I want to learn how your entrepreneurial journey got started at, and even just give the audience like a bit of a background on who you are before you became like everything you are today. Yeah, it started because I hated being an attorney, which is a very common thing. Uh, the odd part about it was I was a liberal arts major with a law degree, uh, never took a business class, never read a marketing book, and yet, and never even really had the concept of entrepreneur. I just knew that I didn't want to practice law. I mean, I knew that by the third year of law school, and then I validated it for four years and saved money and paid off some of my loans and stuff like that. But by the time I quit, it was really kind of desperation. I was just like, I hate this. If I have to be a bartender in Austin, so be it. I don't care. But what I was thinking was, what I want to be is a writer. Again, a very common thing for frustrated lawyers to, <laughs> to think. They just usually don't act on it. Right. Um, and I had been kind of watching the internet from 94 to 98, just going, there's got to be a way you can reach all these people um, that you could make a living that way. I wasn't thinking about getting rich or any of these grand things. Just like keep me out of, you know, waiting tables or whatever. Um, and so at the time, uh, I was watching people early days, no conferences, no tell-all blogs, no courses. You just had to watch what other people were doing. You had to establish relationships and get them to tell you as much as they would. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was this whole group of people that were publishing e-zines. This was pre-blogs, uh, email newsletters, which is ironic how you know there are now venture capital-funded email newsletters in 2016 <laughs> while people are like saying email's dead forever. And we know that's not true. Anyway, so uh, that's what I did. And, and I could write and I was good at building audiences and I actually did pretty well at getting press uh, ranging from you know the local Austin newspaper to Entertainment Weekly. Whoa, okay. But what I, what I wasn't good at was making any money at all because I didn't know what I was doing in general. But in many ways that was kind of a blessing because I had nothing to unlearn and we heard, we've heard that through over the last 20 years that – uh, a lot of traditional marketers and entrepreneurs struggled with the internet because they couldn't figure out how it was different. They were taking these concepts and trying to slap them onto a new medium. Uh, so the first marketing book I ever read was in 1999, and that was Seth Godin's Permission Marketing. And I was like, oh, I get it. I'm doing half of this right. The other half of it is I don't want to sell advertising. I want to sell products and services. And now we call that content marketing, but I didn't hear that term until like 2008 when Joe Paluzzi convinced me that that's what we are all doing. And that's when Copyblogger adopted the term. And so Copyblogger is a content marketing site, but for the first two years, we didn't call it that. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. So that's when the light went off and uh, the only thing I could figure out to sell immediately was was legal services. I was still a licensed attorney. Uh, And I still didn't enjoy it, but doing it on your own and the fact that I could bring in business as a, you know, a young attorney, which is generally in the industry left up to 
the older attorneys, the ones with the country club connections and all that. They were called rainmakers. Get the connection? (laughs) Yes. That's where that that term Uh came from. Anyway, um, so yeah, I was was making a living and I was just fascinated. And I think that's when I figured out that I certainly wasn't a traditional writer because I didn't want to go to New York or Hollywood. Um, I was an entrepreneur who could write. And that was a very exciting realization for me. So that's when I started my second company and the third company. And that basically took me up to 2005. Um, I I was running basically still that small law firm and two virtual real estate brokerages. And I was making more money than I would have made if I would have become a partner in that law firm. Uh, But I was – because I was really great at marketing and I was really conscientious about – making sure that I took care of clients, but I was also a terrible manager. (laughs) So I worked like way too hard. I was miserable. Uh, And I tell you, money doesn't really make up for being miserable. Uh, I don't care what anyone tells you. So basically in 2005, I said, no more of this. Um, And I knew what I wanted was to somehow pretty much go completely to an online model, which was going to mean digital products and services, not um, client services. Yeah. yeah. So that was the end of, of, you know, and I I think to a certain degree, a lot of people start off as a freelancer or a consultant or what have you. And they all kind of almost universally have this desire to move away from that into products and whatnot. So I think it was a common uh, instinct on my part. Um, But what I did differently was when I started Copyblogger, again, um, to talk about what I had done to build these other three businesses, basically as a business noob. I mean, I, you know, um, and the principles behind it and the intersection of copywriting and content to make it more engaging, uh, build an audience uh, around a topic, and then, of course, sell stuff. Right. The interesting thing about 2006 Uh, That was really the beginning of the commercial blogging movement. And as commercial as things are right now, a lot of people, especially younger people, are shocked to hear that there was a backlash against me among some bloggers because I dared to say sell things with a blog. Sounds ridiculous now, but it was a very idealistic movement in the early part. You were the pioneer of monetizing a blog really like you're one of the original guys yeah well darren rouse had started pro blogger and but they i think they were all falling into the mistake i made in 98 which was trying to monetize through advertising and you can see what the online ad industry it's such a mess because look what we talked about the banner ad it's an offline concept slapped on the internet that's why it doesn't work that's why we block them they're heinous all of that um so yeah, I was like, no, here's how you make better content so you can build an audience and then you got to figure out how to sell them stuff. Um, and some bloggers didn't like that and they said so and they linked to me and their audience said, hey, I'm interested in that <laughs> yes. and copy blogger took off. So it's just one of those things where it happens all the time. The old guard will not see how things are evolving and they think their audience – is going to fall in line with them and not necessarily. So um, that was the beginning. I had no products at that point. So I spent, I think, almost 18 months just building the audience, not really selling anything. I tested a few affiliate offers to see 
you know, the, the best way to figure out what people will buy is to see what they actually buy. You know, I know a lot of people will do surveys and you strategically those can be good if you word them correctly, but you can never ask someone, will you buy this? Because you can't trust the answer. You know, they have to pull out yeah. their credit card. That's the only answer that matters. Um, so you'll appreciate this given your specialty. Um, basically in the fall of 2007, we decided that we needed to help people create their own products. And if you're a content creator, online courses are the way to go. And I had a background in learning psychology and instructional design because I use courses as a marketing technique with my, my previous businesses. Yes. Anyway. Um, so I basically wrote a special report, released it, uh, and promised to deliver a course and to, to the audience. And we went from zero to six figures in, in a week and then to seven figures within that first year. So talk about a Kickstarter. I mean, this was before, before. Kickstarter existed. Yeah. We sold something that didn't exist funded by our audience. Let me ask you why, just off the crowdfunding topic for a second, but why did you think that pre-selling a product before you even had it was the way to go? Uh, well, you have to make a living and, you know, things were during that 18 months, you know, things were kind of lean. I did some other stuff in order to make money. Um, but it was also to validate the idea because if everyone said, you know, it's, it, here's an interesting thing also about the difference in times. So online courses are now a $23 billion industry in the United States alone. Mm -hmm. In 2007, I had to convince people that people would pay for courses because, again, people like Robert Scoble were saying people will never pay for information again. I'm like, oh, my God. I so mean – prove the haters I, wrong at this point. Well, I love Robert, but that's just crazy, idealistic, utopian-type thinking. You know, It's just yeah. incorrect. Um, so I, a lot of that report, it was a lot of value, a lot of storytelling, a lot of uh, examples of why that was not true. Um, and people said, yeah, I'll, I'll go along with that. That's good. Uh, the other interesting thing about that by going that long over a year of, of just delivering content for free, not really asking for anything, I had people going, look, just sell me something. Here's my credit card. You know, I mean, it was that kind of mentality and trust me as an entrepreneur and a marketer, that's the kind of starving crowd that you want, not right. the one where you hit them over the head as soon as they sign up to your autoresponder. And yet I think we still see some of those tactics uh, coming back more, you know, because people yeah. get impatient. It takes patience, you know, to, uh, to figure out what the audience wants and then sell it to them. And you went on two times, you've earned trust. They know and like you and you got it right because you paid attention to problems and desires, not, you know, I, I want to buy this thing. You know, Steve yeah. Jobs said it best. It, it's your job to figure out what they want to buy. And yet his genius was in just tapping into core desire, core problem solving, uh, and, and then giving people something they didn't know they wanted. Mm -hmm. And yet it's still satisfying these kind of innate urges, I guess, is a good way to put it, that he understood really clearly. What I can't stand about crowdfunding in general is people think that you can skip the validation phase. Like, they assume, okay, I just got this loan, and I have this product, so maybe if I just don't build an audience and I pump a bunch of ads into it, then it's just going to blow up. 
Well, you know, that's not really just, and I get that, but it's not a crowdfunding thing because think about how products are made and why so many of them fail. It's because, oh, I have an idea. Of course people are going to love this because I do. Mm-hmm. That's not market research. That's not validation. That's you had an idea. And then they go about investing money and in, in getting it built or getting investment funds in order mm-hmm. to, to make it happen or doing crowdfunding, whatever the case may be. And then when it fails, they're like, wow, I can't believe it failed. Well, I can believe it. You know, so yeah. the interesting thing between the time we did that, which just wasn't some grand philosophy, it just seemed to make sense. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, we're featured in uh, The Lean Entrepreneur is a great book um, as one way, one lean approach to product development is audience first. And then Joe's book, Content Inc., that's the whole topic. And and our company, but many others where audience first, figure out what they want, and you succeed almost miraculously right from the beginning. But it's no miracle. You did the work, right? Yeah. So I'm wondering if you, with this digital product that you launched to an audience that ended up being six figures fairly quickly, if you didn't have an audience and were trying to launch that product, how would your approach have been different? Um, well, I don't advise doing that, but there are That's ways good. to do it. If you're really in touch with a market, say you, and this always helps as well, to be a member of your market. So from a software development standpoint, we've gone into SaaS from those early days of, of online course. Um, I'm kind of like our ideal user and I'm also the CEO because I'm a content creator. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm not highly technical. So we have constantly tried to create software that solves the issues that people like me face when dealing with WordPress originally and now marketing automation, right? Um, so if you are that type of person, like you're a member of a tribe and you, tribe and you want to lead that tribe from a product development standpoint, you, you feel pretty sure that your, your validation is on point, then I would go out and, and if something like Kickstarter didn't exist, uh, develop joint venture relationships with the people who do have the audience. Um, and that used to be easier to do than it is these days, honestly, which again is why I stress making uh, real world relationships. Like everyone we met at that conference in, in the Philippines, right? I think any of them could contact me and I could contact any of them if we could help each other out. Yeah. You, you can't put a value on that, really. So really can't. that's why um, – you know, my original attraction to the internet was, you know, as far as you know, I'm not wearing pants right now because Surprise. everything is online, right? Yep. Don't I'm tell me if you pants. are. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's this idea that you, you don't, you know, you're kind of sequestered away. Everything happens through computers and screens and – but that's not true. Real world almost becomes more important because we have a need to connect with people, you know, on a real level and do business with the people that we hit it off with. Exactly. It's a relationship business. Always. Really. Business is relationships, yeah. Yeah, it just goes down to like the other day, um, a new crowdfunding campaign I'm launching in the fall. Someone, one of my friends saw the video and said, hey, I used to work with the, like one of the top people at Musician, which is a massive online guitar uh, education company. And he's like, I need, I'll give you an introduction to this person. Now, if I had just reached out to Musician Cold, uh, 
my email's probably going to get ignored because they're super busy, but if it comes from a close personal friend, it is going to get opened, and so I'm at least going to entertain getting a reply. Yeah. I mean, as you might imagine, I get a lot of cold email, and most of them are just so bad or irrelevant, or they demonstrate within the first paragraph they don't know anything about my company. You know, and uh, and those get deleted. And then they, you know, because I open every email, there are CRM triggers, and they're like, oh, he must be interested. I'll send the follow-up. That one gets marked spam. Anyway, just a tip for you out there if you're thinking of cold emailing. But if it's someone I know, either through online, but more importantly, we've met in person, I'll not only open it, I'll respond. Even if I can't do it, I'll take the time because that matters, right? And I know you, you're a person to me. But when you're busy, it's it's like, you're not a person to me, you're an annoyance in my inbox and I have to get rid of you as quickly as possible, so. That's a good point actually, because you are highly sought after, just, I'm just gonna say it, because you know, um, you're a serial entrepreneur, you are, in my eyes, almost as big as Gary Vee, just in terms of accomplishments and stuff, and how does... I'm sure Gary would disagree with that. I'm sure he disagrees with a lot. <laughs> I love Gary. Gary. Gary and I caught up, a, I guess it was a couple months ago, but his energy intimidates even me, and I think I do a lot. So. <laughs> that His phone number ended up in my phone book randomly because I, I had... I saw it on Facebook. Yeah. You called him. <laughs> I did because great. I thought it was a joke. Yeah. As I'm like, I downloaded a few social apps, and, and then all of a sudden, like, new contact, Gary Vaynerchuk what? So I called him like, just because it could have been some spammer, but it was really him. And his, it, his message, um, voicemail is just awesome. It's basically like, I don't know why you're calling me or even leaving a message to actually think you're going to expect a reply from me. Probably not. Send me a text. Like it was just very like, I don't use voicemail. This is, this shit's like such a waste of time. That's funny. That's, yeah. I, I, I'm not surprised by that at all. Um, so but he wants text, right? Not that's think, preferred mode. I think it said text. So I texted him. I think Gary does like runs his whole business off a of phone, which is kind of a, amazing to me. I'm still, I still need a keyboard. It's the writer part, I think, <laughs> that uh, makes you attached to the the stuff you feel comfortable with producing on. But I think uh, so. Gary's stuff is video. He's got a crew following him around, so yeah, that all that, the time. I know that's kind of a trope. Nuts, but uh, why do we go? Oh, yeah, I was going to ask you, like, how does someone get, if it's a cold email, if they want a reply from you, what would you consider to be uh, top three tips for an amazing cold email that's probably going to get your attention? I mean, it has to be so on point for a problem I'm trying to solve that it's almost serendipity, and that's why it never happens. Now, um, often I'll get introduced to someone, um, and that works obviously better because there's a known connection point. Um, and that'll get me of course to, because of that relationship, then I'm going to invest some time in listening to you because, uh, this person thought it was appropriate. Right. And even those are sometimes off the mark, but that's very different from deleting and or marking as spam. Um, but yeah, I, I have one, I'm looking at my inbox over here <laughs> and it's very full. Um, 
But there's one email that I saved because it seemed like it may be something interesting. And I'm going to check it out later. One out of all the email I've received probably this month, you know, so it, it's, it's a terrible strategy. <laughs> just, and, and there are people who are paid to, you know, call people and just email people. And it shows because it's volume. They're throwing darts. Um, and if, if a certain contact is important to you, then you don't want a dart thrower going after it. I agree. And that's one reason I'm super against hiring um, like PR firms to uh, – not not firms, sorry, because they're more personalized, but more – you'll see online marketing services that vow to get you in front cover New York Times and all this stuff. But all they're doing is just taking one pitch and firebombing that out to their list. And yeah. non-specific is terrible. Yeah, it's terrible. As well, but – Man, so have you ever uh, backed a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo campaign yourself? No, never. No. Why is you know, that? I, it was interesting to me. Um, so yeah, so in 99, Seth Godin really got me on the right track. And then later, uh, he mentioned me in a couple of his books and we became friends. And that's really cool to me because I have so much respect for him. Mm-hmm. And I remember he did, he, he crowdfunded a book. Um and if I remember correctly, both what he said publicly and what he said behind the scenes was he was validating it for his publisher. Um, it, uh, I can't remember exactly. But to me, that is interesting because Seth has the largest audience of a marketing blog on the planet. I mean, we have 500,000 and he makes us look silly. I don't even want to know what his numbers are. Um, and so that surprised me. But it was interesting – because he basically just used the platform to collect the funds and also mm-hmm. the idea. Like, um, I have the campaign in front of me. It's called the Icarus Deception by Seth yeah. Godin. They raised about $290,000. Right. I didn't even know about this. And I thought that was interesting because uh, – you know, I know your philosophy is build an audience and use – crowdfunding, right? Yeah. To me, and I and you know better than me, which I remember when we spoke at the end of the Philippines thing, I was I think I was more interested in what you did than than your interest in me because if you're Seth Godin and you have that audience, to me you've already got what you need. You could set up a payment page and do it the way I did it in 2007. Um, but he clearly found value in it. Now, here's an interesting thing about people as big as Seth. Uh, A lot of platforms will come to Seth and say, will you please do this with us? Because that the exposure they get is greater than anything they could get from a bunch of little stuff. Uh, So who knows? Uh, But I did find that fascinating. It was probably the best execution I've seen of a hybrid between a really robust audience and then using the uh, crowdfunding platform to just make it kind of friction free. Yeah. Yeah. Because that was a point when people started to really trust Kickstarter and and some of the other uh, platforms out there. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a great form of validation for them as well. Yeah. I think a lot of campaigns fall short. Like I will get uh, at least five emails a week right now of people who are like, hi, I launched my campaign it's not moving. What could I do? And I'll always ask them, did you have any audience before? And they're like, no, that's what Kickstarter is for. 
<laughs> and that's right? not correct unless not correct. you get very lucky. And I've always said luck is not a strategy. <laughs> it's really not. Like, yeah. I'm so picky with the campaigns I work with now that even if I think you have a good idea, I think that the way crowdfunding is going, there's so much bad PR for backing campaigns and then delays or even things not getting fulfilled because the founders that went into it are so inexperienced and they get caught up on the fulfillment or manufacturing. So I'm so scared that for my name to be represented with something like I need to make sure that it is a product that is validated. The founder has money to put into it and he's constantly talking to his audience and building an audience with it because it's really like you have to build your product with your audience. And if you don't validate, then you're going to launch, pour a bunch of money into something and it fails. Or I mean, to go back to something that you asked before, which is why did, why did you decide to sell something that didn't exist? I mean, especially with courses, number one, think about teaching. That's how it happens. It doesn't happen all at once. It happens over time, over a semester or whatever. Um, so when you said creating the product with the audience, uh, you're, you're, it's just like content development or, you know, iterative software de- development. You get feedback and then you make it better so that you don't go too far with a wrong idea because you need that constant feedback in order to get it right. And then the third thing uh, that, you, that you just kind of touched on was pressure. Because once you've got that, those people's money, you better show up. And now every time I hear a story where someone does something like that, whether it be Kickstarter or just to an existing audience, and then they just quit, to me that's unacceptable. And I'm just saying unacceptable to me. I, I just could not live with myself if people trusted me and I let them down, you know? And I, I like that kind of motivation. Some people so hate that kind I, of pressure, but I no love man, it. Yeah. Me. <laughs> like that, you'll see, I just released a blog of my Iron Man that I did, or it's a half Iron Man I did a while ago, but I never would have done it had I not literally taken out the credit card and signed up for the half Iron Man because I'm like, ah, oh, crap, now I have to do this. Yeah. Or the commitment where yeah. you feel like you can't back just, out is incredibly motivating let me put it that way or for me even like because i'm just getting into digital courses now like i just finished a beta of my crowdfunding course and i kept putting it off for months and then finally like literally three days before i did my first webinar i was like i'm so sick of putting my client work before my own i'm just gonna do a webinar in two days and just see if anyone buys it and that'll validate the idea and then unfortunately I sold like three spots in the course that I just made up all of a sudden and I had no content created. It was like, Sometimes oh that's God. the way you got to do it, especially if yeah. you have a client-based business. I've seen so often great ideas, uh, great intentions, and then that big client comes along and you can't turn down the dollars, you know? And I always advise people when they're like, well, I want to shift from clients to products. And I'm like, well, then you're going to have to start saying no. You're like, how can I turn away money? I'm like, do you want it or not? Oh, man. You know, you short-term sacrifice for long-term gain. Uh, and, yeah. and so often, so many things come down to that. I, I think entrepreneurship takes a ton of hard work and it takes a lot of luck, uh, you know, luck that you make yourself available to by all that hard work. Um, but it's really just getting down to choose, making decisions based on 
what you say you want as opposed to what you want right now. And, and that's human nature. It's yeah. overcoming that is the key to everything. I don't care if it's exercise, running an Ironman, um, you know, or starting a business. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm curious. How was the – I mean, it's completely shifting gears. I love doing that. But um, you went from Copy Blogger, which is a digital products and course creation, to Rainmaker Platform, which is SaaS. How was that transition for you? Yeah, there were a lot of steps in between. So we – um, have never taken venture capital or anything like that. Uh, until this year, we didn't advertise. It literally was fueled by the audience. And, um, and we did 12 million in revenue last year. So uh, content marketing for us is not something we just preach. It's how we did everything. Um, so we're, as a bootstrap company, you have to figure out uh, you may have a grand vision that is a SaaS platform, which is Rainmaker, but then you got to step back and figure out how you're going to get there. Um, so in between 2007 and 2010, uh, that first uh, course was one, it was a separate company. It was actually me and Tony Clark, who's now our COO, no relation, but he was my first partner. In 2009, I got into the WordPress premium software market with another start. Okay. Yeah. That one went to multi-millions within a short period of time. Uh, 2009, we launched our first lightweight SaaS product, which was a SEO copywriting uh, service that kind of evolved into more sophisticated content marketing. That also went to seven figures. But in 2010, I was like, I've got these three companies. They're all doing well. I'm certainly doing well. I should have probably just left it at that. But no, we, of course I not. wanted I wanted to do something bigger, and I realized there's no way I'm going to pull it off um, without these people who have no in economic incentive to talk to each other, right? Mm -hmm. I'm the only thing in common. So we all got together. We merged all the companies together. This is the simple version of the story, and that's how we formed what is now Rainmaker Digital. Mm -hmm. okay. And it was at the, in that meeting in Denver, none of the – all of us had never been in the same room together. And in two hours, we had a company and a plan, and that was to build this thing. Uh, but first, we launched WordPress hosting called Synthesis. And that makes about three million bucks a year, but we did it because we had to get hosting infrastructure down cold to build a SaaS, right? That was step one. And we built membership and landing page software uh, which then got incorporated into the platform later, but we sold it. Uh, so step by step, we would develop the pieces. We would use it for ourselves with our own sites to, to make sure it was robust. I mean, our sites get a lot more traffic than the average site, so we figured that was a good validation of quality. And then we would say, hey, this is what we use, uh, and now we're offering it to you. And we did that all the way until we launched Rainmaker Platform in 2014. Um, and even then, that was a very 1.0 thing that we rapidly iterated on through feedback, just like anything else, yeah. uh, to the point where it is today. So when you say you started with online courses and then you went to SaaS. Yeah, you know what? It morphed whole bunch over of time. <laughs> exactly. Should have researched that's more. How, no, that's okay. But that's, <laughs> that's how you fund and kind of validate the market yeah. step, step, which in my mind is smarter than taking a whole bunch of cash and burning in at both ends and being wrong, right? 
I'm curious. You, the common theme in your business is that you've done everything organically through right. customer feedback. What has been your best way to ask customers for their feedback? Until this year, we also didn't do that. We never did a survey. Oh, and I was, okay. I was somewhat against them because uh, with the psychology background, I understand how survey results can be skewed um, based on leading questions and suggesting answers and all this stuff. The, the really only good survey you can do is an open-ended question. And a lot of people do that now. You know, the whole ask method and, and these other methods. Oh, geez, that's smart. You can, so I've got nothing against surveying as long as you take the time to actually read what they say and just let them say what they want uh, and then look for patterns in that. But uh, I didn't do that. I consider uh, you know, social media, which again, a lot of people forget blogs were the original social media. We used to call them that. Then there was the social media news sites like Dig and uh, Delicious Popular and all that stuff. And then there was Facebook and Twitter and, you know, uh, until that went mainstream, it was a smaller subset, but it was very useful to us because we were serving those people, online publishers, people who uh, normal people thought were complete nerds, but now we rule the world, right? <laughs> well, it's true. Yeah, well, I mean. um, but uh, I consider social media and all its evolution to be the greatest free market research arena in the world. Uh, the problem is how do you know what to pay attention to and how do you filter out the noise? And, but that's pretty much all I did. And, but most importantly, you're not just out there in the wild paying attention to whomever. When you build an audience, you're not building a demographic or even a psychographic. It's an interest-based group of pe real people that mm -hmm. you have a relationship with. So I tend to listen to them more, but unrestrained, more like they're, they're off the cuff comments. They're the, the products that they would, um, complain about the things they said frustrated them about WordPress. Amazing. Cause people love to complain, right? Oh yeah. Plaint is a product waiting to be made or an improvement on an existing product that's not living up to their expectations. So that's it. And now we have 200,000 customers, so we listen to them more than we listen to anyone else because once you get that kind of base and you've got people who are actually using your products and you're trying to make them better, then those are the people you really need to listen to. Of course. Yeah, it makes sense. I was going to add something to that, but I'm like, no, he pretty much covered that <laughs> as well. So, uh, listen, are you going to be – because you're based out of – at Boulder. Yes. Yeah. So I'm at an event in Boulder. It's be my first time there next month. Yeah. Um, are you around? I'm going to be at the event because I just had lunch with Adam and. Uh, oh, that's amazing. So, yeah. Perfect. So yeah, okay. it started out with um, Soul saying, you know, are you going to, you should check this out. And then he introduced me and then we had coffee and next thing you know. But I remember seeing that you were going to be there. I am. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you're like, are you going to be around? I'm like, yes. A lot of times we will leave in the summer and try to go travel. But this, like I mentioned before we started, we're working harder than usual <laughs> right now. So, so just keep working. No travel plans. But, yes, I will be there. If you've never been to the St. Julian in Boulder, you're going to love it. It's amazing. Oh, I can't wait. I think I'm planning uh, – I'm going to be there from, like, the Friday to Tuesday. 
yeah. just give it a bit of extra time for meetings or whatever. But um, the event is 212. I'm really excited because uh, all I saw was Tim Ferriss's name. <laughs> yes. And then I saw like the amazing lineup with Noah Kagan and now you, which is awesome. Um, so I'm pretty excited about it. Cool. Um, yeah. So you speaking or mentoring? Oh, no, I'm just I'm just showing up there. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I know Tim awesome. and Ryan and Noah, you know, so I just I'm going to sit back and heckle them from the stage. Yeah. <laughs> so fun to watch. No, no, it's going to be good, I think. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're going to have to uh, kind of – We get, do we have any other Cebu people that are going to be there? Have you, no? Not that you? I, That's no. all right. You'll represent. I will. I'll be like, hey, I'm the Ducker clan. <laughs> I guess if that's what we want to call us, right? He better give us a shout out for this episode. <laughs> it's like a great testimonial for it. <laughs> exactly. But, uh, no, it's really cool. So before we wrap up here, I'm wondering if you have any famous last words for anyone who would be starting off their entrepreneurial journey with a crowdfunding campaign. Yeah, um, it's just like entrepreneurism 101, which is. It's not a great product unless the, the the customer or the prospect thinks it's great, and that's generally where it it either completely fails, or you have to be agile enough to pivot. You know that famous word that's become part of all our vocabularies. Um, and if you're going to pivot, you're going to have to be really tuned into feedback. And how are you going to get that feedback? You know, um, it, to me, it's all about audience first. Uh, because you'll have a better idea of how to ideate in the first place and then you'll have a way to kind of kick it around, right? You Like you did. You floated it out there in a webinar and people were like, yeah, I'll buy that. I was like, oh, yeah. okay. Right? It didn't <laughs> – and if no one wanted to buy it, you're just like, okay, that was a good thing I didn't create that up front, you know? I mean it, it's all about um, just what – the whole point of this conversation of validation – in a way that has nothing to do with your ego. It has nothing to do with your idealism. It has to do with, you know, an entrepreneur is a servant to a market, hopefully a well-compensated one, but still you're serving people. And if you can't get your head around that or your ego can't take that, you're not cut out for it. Yeah. I love that. And, uh, I also just checked out your podcast. So unemployable, I believe. Yes. Unemployable. Love oh, you're going to be on that. Don't think you're not. <gasps> really? You've got to be. Okay. Who, yes. how, who else am I going to talk to about crowdfunding? It's got to be you. That's true. I'm not going to name any names. <laughs> That's true. I love it. <laughs> cool. We'll connect with that offline. But um, if uh, people want to find out more about what you're working on or um, – I'm going to be putting a link to all your companies uh, in the show notes. But do you have a link for them? Okay, so here's usually what I, I try to get people started with. So if, if you're thinking about this audience first thing, sounds like a good idea. Yeah. That's basically content marketing. So Copyblogger is where you want to go. Specifically, my.copyblogger.com. Uh, there's a free library of eBooks uh, that covers everything from content marketing strategy and fundamentals, uh, copywriting, email marketing, landing pages, pretty much whatever you need to get rolling. That's a great resource for that. If you're more of an audio person, and this is a podcast, then you might want to head to rainmaker.fm, which is our podcast network. And uh, let's see, what am I leaving out? 
And if you're if you're struggling with the technology side of things, and that's what Rainmaker Platform is for, and that's RainmakerPlatform.com. So, whatever you're where you're at, I think there's a place to get started with us. We almost have too much going on, so I try to distill it. Yeah, it's like instead of picking 50 links, what are the top three? And you gave those to me, so just fantastic. Cool. Well, this has been awesome, so thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you, and I will see you soon in Boulder. Sounds good. See ya. Ah, man, that was great. So a few cool things. Uh, we just launched a YouTube channel, so it's called Crowdfunding Uncut, and we're going to be sharing the video version of these interviews as well as a weekly crowdfunding tip. So if you have a burning question you want me to answer, you never know, it might actually end up as a YouTube video, you can email me at K, so the letter K, at crowdfundinguncut.com. And this episode has been brought to you by BackerKit. It is an amazing crowdfunding fulfillment service agency that, trust me, is going to get rid of a lot of the headaches that I've seen project creators get once the campaign ends. Because more than likely, this is your first rodeo delivering product. And imagine trying to finish your campaign, figure out manufacturing, figure out fulfillment, and sometimes it's just better to focus on what you want to focus on and let somebody else handle the dirty work. So head over to backerkit.com. But apart from that, um, if you are looking for more crowdfunding resources, you know our website. It's crowdfundinguncut.com. And we have a cool freebie there. So this has been awesome. Um, Thanks so much. I hope you're digging the content. And we will talk to you next week. Cheers. Are you launching a product on either Kickstarter or Shopify and you're feeling completely overwhelmed with the process? Hi there, my name is Kirsten, the CEO of Launch and Scale. To date, we've helped several online sellers sell millions of dollars online and scale their business from zero to seven figures by focusing on building an audience of fans that will actually convert into paying customers. If you're serious about building a seven-figure e-commerce brand with less time and less risk, you should check out our product launchpad. PLP is a proven accelerator that takes you step-by-step through the process of launching and scaling your product brand. Brands like the Monk Manual, Aberlite, Series Chill, Jamstack, and several others were all launched using our product launchpad. So if you'd like to be our next success story, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more. And for a limited time, we're offering a seven-day trial of the product launchpad for only $1. Again, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more.